0: would like to let you know that tonight we are gathering as a church body at 6 o'clock for prayer. Um, tonight, this gathering uh, is for members only. If you are a guest or a regular attender but have not joined our fellowship, then perhaps tonight you could just uh, stay at home and pray for us from there. But tonight this gathering is just for our church body for prayer as part of a, a rescuing process for one of our members who has fallen into sin. So this afternoon, as you relax, I hope that you'll ready yourself to come for a time of earnest and needful prayer on behalf of one of our own. Um, And again, if you're a guest or a regular tender, any other of our corporate prayer gatherings are open to you. We welcome you at those. But tonight, as we work very hard to protect uh, our members, this this members-only time is an important part of that. So I hope that if you're a member, you'll take that responsibility earnestly and join us if at all possible. This morning, however, we want to continue our study of the book of 1 Corinthians in chapter 7. The book of 1 Corinthians is a letter written by the founding pastor of the church in Corinth to that church. It is, it is a letter um, written in love and a letter most needed. This church, as, as we've seen if you've been walking through it with us, was a mess. Um, just like us. Shaped differently, but just like us. We clean up good on Sundays, uh, but oh, during the week, uh, how troubled we are often. And more than we would like to admit, 1 Corinthians is a reflection of us. We need to see ourselves in its teaching and heed its admonition. Because I know that for some of you, this was a really tough week. And it may very well have been a shameful week. Um, and yet, here you are, waiting to hear from God, to get recalibrated, to be set free, to have your hope restored. And 1 Corinthians 7 is God's gift to us in that regard. So if you'll bow with me in prayer, I'll ask Him to do that for us together. God, we, we need grace this morning strengthen and protect and restore and forgive and all the things that Your grace does for us. And I pray that through this particular passage, You might bring that in an extraordinary way by Your Spirit, through Your Word, to Your people. May it be so for Christ's sake, we pray. Amen. Paul's been addressing all sorts of different groups in this chapter. He's talked about widows, and he's talked about married people and mixed marriages between a believer and a non-believer. And as part of that last week, one of the things that we saw was that um, Paul addressed what to do if a spouse leaves. He simply says, you should stay single or you should be reconciled. And that raises all kinds of questions in our day. Um... For those among us who are already divorced, what do we do with that? What if what if you've already remarried? What if you've already done knowingly or unknowingly what the scriptures say God is now telling us not to do? Um, and I want to, before we jump into the back end of our passage, I just want you to know that if that's your status this morning, you are loved. And welcome here. Just like all the rest of us who have fallen prey at one time or another to a wisdom that is not God's. You are welcome here. But just like any other sin in our past, it requires repentance and to seek forgiveness from the ones that have been wronged and to be reconciled As the scriptures say, to live at peace as much as it is possible with all men. To live in grace as you are. For those of you who are remarried, it means to live in grace in the marriage that you're in. Um, Listen to this guidance from our church's statement on marriage. It says, We believe that God is most pleased when a new marriage pursues full obedience to His word including a lifelong commitment to the current marriage as a way to honor him. You can honor Christ by repenting of any and all past sins related to your previous marriage, divorce, and remarriage, and then by endeavoring wholeheartedly to build your current marriage in such a way that it lasts for a lifetime and pleases God. So again, if that's your situation... But you know, you're welcome here in the midst of all the rest of us who have a past that's in need of repenting of. And our elders and our pastors are eager to walk through that with you. Okay. Now, Paul, in the back end of chapter 7, changes his focus to mostly be on singles. He has taken a whack at almost everybody in this chapter, and singles are not to be spared today uh, he focuses on you a bit. And this, you need to know, is an extraordinarily difficult text to figure out exactly what it means. And uh, you'll, you'll pick up that today. But uh, one scholar put it this way. He said, this is probably the most difficult and controverted section in the letter. And another prefaces his remarks by saying, I suggest with trembling hesitation that this is what the passage means. Um, and as you're going to see today with the translation that I'm putting on the screen, will differ from yours a bit, probably. It's, uh, at points in this, it's so difficult to exactly figure out what Paul means that the English translations vary a good bit. Now, having said all of that, uh, we're not going to master the details of the passage today, for sure. But there are some really clear, overarching principles that I think will really be valuable for us. So it's worth plowing ahead. Uh, in spite of uh, these precautionary notes. So, starting in verse 25 of chapter 7, Paul says, Now about virgins. I have no command from the Lord, but I give a judgment as one who by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. So again, Paul is saying, as he has said before, Jesus didn't speak to this directly. So I'm bringing you guidance on this. The way he expresses his teaching here, it still bears divine authority, but it functions a bit more like wisdom than a one-size-fits-all prescription or command. It's not like, don't lie. Don't steal. Um, He's going to say, stay single. It's not a one-size-fits-all command like that. And Paul's going to point out different exceptions to this. So he's bringing wisdom to us. Um, But... Again, this is no less inspired than other scripture. And it's not just to be blown off because it doesn't say this is a command, an ironclad command for you. Um, To disregard wisdom, especially wisdom from God, is the mark of a fool. Uh, It's throughout Proverbs. Here's an example from Proverbs 23. It says, don't speak to a fool or he will scorn the wisdom of your words. To scorn wisdom is the mark of a fool. So this morning we want to humbly submit to Paul's wise counsel that he's bringing to us, especially to those that he refers to as virgins. Um, now, in some of your Bibles, that's rendered betrothed. Okay? Um, and that's, that'll work for us this morning. To consider the main target of what Paul's talking about are some engaged folks, primarily ladies some of whom are getting counsel from a group, one of those messed up groups in the Corinthian church, um, who believe that it would be more spiritual if they would break off their engagement and stay single. That that would be a more spiritual route for them to go. Now, Paul actually agrees that singleness is to be preferred in some ways, but not because it's a more spiritual state. He's going to have other reasons that we're going to see for appreciating singleness. And uh, we start picking up on those in the next verses. Because of this present crisis, I think that it's good for a man to remain as he is. Are you pledged to a woman? Do not seek to be released. Are you free from such a commitment? Do not look for a wife. But if you do marry, you have not sinned. Okay, And if a virgin marries... She has not sinned. But those who marry will face many troubles in this life, and I want to spare you this. Now, Paul here is reiterating his principle that we've seen already he's laid out in this chapter. Stay as you are. He is urging us to stay as we are, where God has assigned us, because it's not changing your scenery... Changing your social standing or your marital status, that is the big deal. You can honor God, single or married. Changing your status one way or the other is not going to be the big deal maker for you. What matters, Paul says, you remember from back in verse 19, is obeying the commands of God. Right where you are. That's what matters. His concern for those who are considering marriage, unlike those who thought it was unspiritual, is just that there are many troubles in this life for folks who get married. Okay? And don't amend that any too soon because that only creates more trouble for you. Okay, uh, And it's not really those kind of troubles that Paul has in mind. There is something pressing the church as a whole in Corinth that generates many troubles in this life that's going to be especially difficult for those who are married. Paul says it's some kind of present crisis that generates these many troubles in this life, especially for married folk. Now, some have said this might have been a famine or it could have been persecution. But Paul um, continues to talk about that pressure in the next few verses. He says, what I mean, brothers, is that the time is short, that it's shortened. From now on, those who have wives should live as if they had none. Those who mourn as if they did not. Those who are happy as if they were not. Those who buy something as if it were not theirs to keep. Those who use the things of the world as if not engrossed in them. For this world in its present form is passing away. So Paul continues now to describe this crisis, these pressures that are on the church. He says, time is short. The world in its present form is passing away. It seems that he has something grander in scope in mind than a particular trouble just in Corinth. Probably not just a famine or persecution that may or may not have been going on. Paul seems to have in mind what was set in motion with the death and the resurrection of Jesus and what will find fulfillment at his return. It's this age we live in between the two comings of Christ. Peter talks about it in Second Peter some. He says, the day of the Lord is going to come like a thief. The heavens will disappear with a roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire and the earth and everything in it will be laid bare. Since everything will be destroyed in this way, what kind of people ought you to be? How should you live in light of the time that we're in? You ought to live holy and godly lives as you look forward to the day of God and speed its coming. He goes on, says that day will bring about the destruction of the heavens by fire and the elements will melt in heat. But in keeping with his promise, we are looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth, the home of righteousness. So then, dear friends, since you are looking forward to this, make every effort to be found spotless, blameless, and at peace with him. So this unfolding reality of the times in which we live is to shape us And to motivate us to be found spotless when that day comes. So Paul is saying that this reality is to be more defining of our lives than our marriages, than our possessions, or any joy or sorrow that we experience. It shapes us. We we know it's coming. And it influences us in our sufferings now. Think of someone who's terminally ill. They know something is coming. And it shapes the days they have now. It's like that. Um, There's a a Tim McGraw song that Daniel refuses to sing and forbids me to. Um, It's it's called Live Like You Were Dying. And in it he talks about tomorrow was a gift. And you got eternity to think about what you do with it. What did you do with it? What can I do with it? What would I do with it? So all of these things, uh, wives whom we are to love, mourning for which Scripture says we are blessed, joys which we are commanded to celebrate, possessions for which we are to give thanks, all these things are legitimate. Paul is not delegitimatizing them. He's not saying get rid of all these things. But they're not the center. They're not the big deal. They're not the thing that shapes us. Just like there's an overarching thing for someone who knows that the end of their life is coming, drawing near. All these things are shaped by that reality. Gordon Fee, in his commentary on 1 Corinthians, says the Christian still buys and marries, but he or she does so as if not. These things do not determine one's existence. The clear vision of the future does. So while marrying and staying single and buying and weeping and rejoicing all matter, they only make sense in light of what's coming, of who is coming. And as a pastor, Paul is concerned... That to marry and weep and laugh and buy and use things um, as though Christ were not going to return. When we do that, we open up ourselves to great trouble, both now and in that day. Peter warns us that there's going to be people who want to live life that way. Back in 2 Peter 3 again, he says, First of all, you must understand, in the last days, scoffers will come, scoffing and following their own evil desires. And they will say, Where is this coming that he promised? Ever since our fathers died, everything goes on as it has since the beginning of creation. So we dare not live like that. Instead, we are to live in light of the fact that He is coming. He has come. He is coming. And this is to shape us. How do we live like that? How do we live like we were dying? Like Christ is really coming. Like the time was short. Whether by death, which is... Which is actually how Calvin understood this. John Calvin, he understood the shortness of time just to be the brevity of life. More more likely, the question is, how do we live in light of Christ's return that will end this age in which we live? And the best answer to that, probably, is in the verses that follow. In verse 32, Paul says, I would like for you to be free from concern. Some of your Bibles say free from anxiety. I am saying this for your own good, not to restrict you, but that you may live in a right way in undivided devotion to the Lord. So Paul here is saying, I want you to be free from concerns and anxieties in this life. He puts it more positively in that last verse where he says, I want you to live in a right way in undivided devotion to the Lord. So to live in light of the times, the times that we are in, this shortened time between the two comings of Christ is to live free from concerns that distract us from the Lord. So are there things for you that have hold of you more than they should? Things that worry you or things that engage you or interest you in a way that usurps your supreme devotion to the lord there's an interesting thing Uh, there was a uh, question done on a radio a sports radio station if somebody offered you two million dollars could you give up sports for two years that's that's what they asked their listeners. No games on TV, radio, or in person. No sports page, no ESPN highlight films, no Tuesday morning arguing about Monday night football. So one fan phones in and said, "No. He couldn't do that. He would definitely not give up sports, not even for 25 million." Listen to why. "It's where I turn when I pick up the paper in the morning," he said. "It's where I go when I'm on the internet." It's what I watch on television. It's what I listen to on the radio in the car. Everywhere I go, it surrounds everything I do. For some of you, that sounds way too familiar. There was a 2007 study by the Barna Group that found that seven out of ten adults choose their earthly family over their heavenly father when asked to choose the most important relationship to them, Is there anything that's usurping undivided devotion to God in your life? Anything come to mind as you think about this? Married or unmarried, are you living in undivided supreme devotion to your Lord? Uh, earlier this year, many of you know, I was in Thailand uh, doing a conference that was hosted by um, one of our Missionaries sent out from North Wake for a bunch of people out of China who came out uh, to to attend that conference and hopefully be encouraged. Um, And I had a conversation with AJ, who is that guy that we sent out over there, about the shape of baptism in China. So I wondered how they did it and how that worked. Because the government is not uh, very open to that, especially with young people. This is what he wrote me. He sent me an email. He said, Hi, Larry, I know you're interested in what we do with baptism. I just returned from a a one-and-a-half-day training with a couple of key Yi brothers. It's a people group they're working with in China. Uh, One of them shared the following story. After our last time of training together, he writes, I returned home. A few weeks later, we were having house church in my home. This is in China. About 30 came, of which 15 had already been baptized. One of those who came... Who hadn't been baptized wanted to be, as is our pattern, we ask the following questions. Listen closely. One, have you put your trust in Jesus who died on the cross for your sins and on the third day rose again? Two, have you destroyed your idols and renounced idol worship? Three, are you willing to share the gospel with others? For, by God's grace, will you keep following Jesus even when they curse you, hit you, arrest and imprison you, and threaten to kill you? He says the candidate responded affirmatively to all the questions and was baptized. Shortly thereafter, the police showed up. I, along with the other leader, were arrested we were taken to the police station not given any food and made to sleep on the floor with no blankets even though it was very cold we were fined and released the next day having been told you may not share the gospel or meet together with any group of ten or more people he says this brother is still walking faithfully and serving Christ despite this persecution the one who was baptized he committed yesterday to go home and share with many more So, how about you? How would you answer those questions? Will you follow Christ? Deploying the unique merits of your singleness with undivided devotion? Those of you who are single. Will you destroy any competing idols? Will you share the gospel with your friends who are far from God? Will you keep following Jesus no matter what? Paul is calling all of us, all of us, to undivided devotion to the Lord today. But to those of you who are single, He really has you in the crosshairs. Paul is working hard in this passage not to establish some kind of spiritual superiority to the state of singleness over marriage. which sounds odd to us today because we tend to flip it on its head and think that marriage is superior to singleness. But Paul is working hard the other direction because he does have a personal preference for singleness. He is single, and as we've heard him say, he wishes that everyone could be like him. Because there are certain advantages to being single. You are free of concerns that married people cannot and ought not be fully free from. For instance, I am buying countertops. After 20 years of sorry laminated countertops that have come unglued and I, I taped them back together. The tape is now coming off and so I'm buying countertops. You know, as a man, I am good with tape on my countertops. It doesn't bother me. But as a married man who would like to be happily married, I care about my countertops. Okay? That's um, just how it works. Now, my wife, my wife is buying a truck. Okay? <laughs> Not that truck. I'm an old, kind of dinged up Ford Ranger, but she's buying a truck. If she were single, my wife would have no interest in a truck. But because she is married to me, she is happily, mostly, buying a truck. Um, Because she is concerned for me. Her concern is for me, and mine for her, as it ought to be. There are certain advantages to being single. There are concerns that you simply do not have that married people ought to have and dare not neglect. There are certain advantages to being single. You can do things that those of us who who are married and married with children simply cannot do. There's, uh, a little over a year ago, there was an opportunity for people to go ...backpacking in a closed country in North Africa and share the gospel. Two North Wake guys stepped up. Adam and Daryl. They're there right now. Backpacking in the mountains, finding the villages, sharing the gospel. Two single guys. Father of five? Not so much. Two single guys? Yes, they're there. And he says it's the same with women. And we see it the same. Last week... We commissioned Courtney to go to Bosnia to work amongst the Muslim women there. Single lady? Yes. Mom with three preschoolers? Probably not so easy, not so much. Um, Now he says in here, and I want to make sure you understand this, he says that almost in a pejorative sense he talks about pleasing your husband, pleasing your wife. It's a good thing to please your husband, ladies. Paul is not being pejorative in that regard. But it is a limiting factor. It keeps you from doing things that you might could have done when you were single. Guys, it's a good thing to please your wife. Um, But it's a limiting thing. It will keep you from being available to do things that you could have done if you were single. Um, Not only are there less distractions... Less concerns for single followers of Christ. There is, in in a way that we don't normally think, there is less suffering for singles. And that's Paul's pastoral concern in verse 35 um, behind this matter. Uh, He says, I am saying this for your own good. I believe it's good for you. Because there's a sense in which the suffering of marrieds will be greater in certain ways than will be the suffering of singles. And again, we don't think this way. We don't talk this way very often. But it's true. Uh, You see it in the eyes of parents of wayward teens. Their suffering is great. Of parents who lose young children to cancer. How great is their suffering. You see it when one spouse betrays another. Their suffering is great. And Paul, back in verse 28, when he says, those who marry will face many troubles in this life, and I want to spare you this, probably has some of those things. When we live in this age, in between the comings of Christ, this Short time between the comings of Christ, when suffering is great, because sin still reigns. Paul recognizes that. And he would spare the singles in the church at Corinth that he loves that suffering. So, here at Northwake, if you're single. We thank God for you. You are God's gift to our church. And we need you, the body needs you, to lead in your devotion to Christ as only someone single can. You need to seek and serve God in ways that those of us who are married simply cannot. And you must guard against your singleness becoming a haven for selfishness, which is what our culture presses you towards. Um, There was a study done of uh, single young men, they call them Sims. And uh, one of the researchers was Kay Heimowitz. She says that single young men often loiter in a hormonal limbo between adolescence and adulthood. And in this limbo, Sims often seem to hang out in a playground of drinking, hooking up, playing video games, and in many cases, underachieving. She says, uh, once upon a time, video games were for little boys and girls. Those boys have grown up to become child man gamers, she calls them turning a niche industry into a $12 billion powerhouse. Men between the ages of 18 and 34, 18 and 34 are now the biggest video gamers. According to Nielsen Media, almost half of American males in that age bracket used a console during the last quarter back in 2006. I'm sure it's gotten more. And they did so on average... Two hours and 43 minutes a day. That's 13 minutes longer than 12 to 17-year-olds, she says, who evidently have more responsibilities than today's 20-somethings. <laughs> Singles at North Wake, especially my brother's. Lead us in the pursuit of Christ. That is how singleness is a gift to you. Don't squander it. That's how your singleness is a gift to the body. Don't waste it. That's how your singleness is best offered to God as worship. For the sake of the church... Don't waste this season of your life. As the old hymn says, Rise up, O men of God. Have done with lesser things. Give heart and soul and mind and strength to serve the King of kings. Paul continues in verse 36. If anyone is worried... That he might not be acting honorably toward the virgin he is engaged to. And it's in this text especially that our translations will weave in and out. So don't let that be a distraction to you. They may diverge a bit. And if his passions are too strong and he feels he ought to marry, he should do as he wants. He is not sinning. They should get married. But the man who has settled the matter in his own mind, who is under no compulsion, but has control over his own will... And who has made up his mind not to marry the virgin, this man also does the right thing. So then he who marries the virgin does right, but he who does not marry her does better, Paul says. Um, And again, this is very difficult to sort out. It's possible some of your translations will render this as a father trying to decide if he should give away his daughter. As opposed to a fiancé deciding if he should marry Some of uh, your translations will say, as this one does, that if a man has strong passions, it's good for him to marry. Some of you will render that if the virgin is getting old, then she should marry. So the translations are varying a bit here. Uh, Again, Gordon Fee, who's written the most precise commentary on 1 Corinthians I've run across, says, Unfortunately, this is an explanation that is no longer clear as to what is being explained, what precisely it means, and for whom it is intended. And you love it when the smart guys are so helpful. You know, you pay money, buy their book, and that's what you get out of it. Um, but clear, what's clear here is that Paul is protecting. He's, bending, he's exalted singleness. Here he's bending over backwards to protect marriage as God's good provision. It's not some sinful act or unspiritual act. But, oh, he does prefer being single. There it is again. Paul loves uh, singleness and the gift that that is to him uh, from God. The closing two verses of our passage, he says, "A woman is bound to her husband as long as he lives. But if her husband dies, she is free to marry anyone she wishes. But she must belong, or he must belong, to the Lord. In my judgment, she is happier if she stays as she is, and I think that I too." have the Spirit of God. So this closing statement of Paul's is a great statement of the intended permanence of the marriage bond. Bound together, as our vows say, till death us do part. Our vows have it right, according to the Scriptures, till death us do part. And really, this is the only clear, undisputed endorsement of remarriage in the Bible And that's for widows who marry in the Lord. And again, you notice though, Paul's esteem for the great value and merit of the state of singleness, which is protected from the sufferings of marriage and released to do ministry outside of the concerns of marriage, comes to the surface here. Paul, as a pastor, loved the singles that were under his care. Let me just say, um, the the leaders at North Wake, of which I am privileged to be one, we are so deeply thankful for those of you who are single and call North Wake home. For long years, that was a a very faithful handful. But those numbers have greatly increased and our church is so enriched by singles that call our church home and serve so beautifully, and seek Christ so passionately, um, we are deeply thankful to God for your presence. And um, as a small uh, token of that thankfulness, um, I would like to ask those of you who are single, if you're an adult and you're single, I want you to come down front, and we want to pray for you. We want to pray in, in the middle of a society that's gone crazy, that you would be undivided in your devotion to the Lord. So if you will just make your way down, there's a bunch of you, so you won't be down here alone. Don't, you don't have to debate. Should I go, come on, we know you're out there. I'm not going to embarrass you. We're just going to pray for you. If you'll come down, we really do want to bless you and encourage you and pray for you. So if you'll come down front. And worship team, go ahead and come up at this time if they'd like as well. Outstanding. Any married people left out there? (laughs) All right. Church, let's bow. Let's pray for these whom God has gifted to us. Father, um, as I look on these before me, how thankful I am that you have called them before the foundations of the world to be yours and have sovereignly placed them here to be ours. And God, I, I thank you for them. What a treasure they are to our church. And God, I pray for them. I pray you would protect each and every one as they are assaulted every day with temptations. God, protect them. And God, as they are tempted every day sexually, I pray that they would fight well and they would prevail. As they are tempted every day to be sucked into buying and using or hoping in marriage that you would free them from those deceits. And they would have undivided devotion to you in this season of their life especially. And God, I pray that you would weave them deeply into the fabric of our church. That amongst their friends here, not only would there be singles, but there would be families who love them and bless them and cherish them and challenge them and protect them. So God, these, these special ones we entrust to you and give thanks to you and pray for them in the name of Christ. Amen. Amen. You all can return to your seat. Thanks. The congregation will stand. We're going to declare together that Christ is is enough for us as our closing declaration of worship.